coming up on this week's podcast. Take this cup from me. Remember, Jesus knew what he was about to endure, that cup of wrath for God. But why now is he asking that the cup be taken from him when everything's been in place and he's been moving toward that his whole entire life here on earth? Why is he saying, if it's possible, take it away? Stay tuned for more. And welcome to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a vibrant church committed to biblically-based teaching, often focusing on discovering the Jewish roots of the faith. You can find out more about our church at newhopechapel.org. Now, here's Julie Coleman with today's message. Looking at examples of prayer, um, and today we'll be looking at the prayer relinquishment, as Justin mentioned earlier. Uh, but let's recap what we covered. The first week we talked about the Lord's Prayer and the example that he gave to us in very simplistic language of the attitude with which we need to come to God, um, both um, acknowledging his power and his goodness and then uh, uh, the acknowledgement that we are totally dependent on him. Then the second week we looked at the letter that Paul left uh, to the church in Philippi and they talked, it, that one talked about transformation and if you remember last week, we talked about that we need transformation in our hearts and in our minds and in our will. And so prayer does change things, that transformation process. I've got a caterpillar to a butterfly to kind of mimic that. It does change things. We always see that prayer changes things. But what we usually think of as prayer changing things is prayer changing our circumstances and the things that are going on in our lives that we want to see change. And sometimes God does do that. But there's also a transformation that happens in the life of the person who's doing the praying. And so that's what we covered last week. Um, it's a great quote by uh, Richard Foster in his book on prayer. To pray is to change. Prayer is the central avenue God uses to transform us. The closer we come to the heartbeat of God, the more we see our need and the more we desire to be conformed to Christ. When we pray, God slowly and graciously reveals to us our hiding places and sets us free from them. And so prayer is a thing that causes change. Well, this week, in our last week of prayer, we're going to be looking at the prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane in the night of his betrayal and arrest. Um, and there's no better example in the Bible of a prayer relinquishment, the expression of trading our wills for God's. And so we're going to be looking at that because every believer needs to incorporate its content into the prayer life it, because it's vital to having a victorious walk with God through trials and temptations. My sister, um, she's a character. She, she's one of those wonderful people that always gets to see the humor in the situation. Um, and she was driving up to uh, Vermont a couple of years ago to pick up her daughter who had been to a retreat. And the weather was bad and forecast to get worse. And as she was driving, she was up in the middle of nowhere up in Vermont driving up north. And the um, roads started getting really, really slick. The, the rain started turning to freezing rain. Now, we all know what freezing rain is because we live in Maryland. <laughs> As a matter of fact, we're supposed to get some on Tuesday. But, you know, that freezing rain is this dreaded words. And sure enough, she started really getting it. The highways were bad. She knew she needed to get off the road now. So she called her daughter, said, stay put for the night where you are. She was with a friend. I'm going to get a hotel here in Podunk Land, Vermont. So she pulled off, and she was on a secondary road. Now she's driving down 
Uh, the roads were totally icy, and she, the first hotel she came to, she was stopping, and she saw Chevy Suburban coming toward her, going a little too fast, and he all of a sudden veered and hit her head on. Now, thank God she was spared from super serious injury. She was um, stuck in her car, though, because her windshield shattered, and her door was crushed enough that she couldn't get it open, and she hurt her neck, and she broke three ribs, and she broke a foot, I think, slamming on the brake, <laughs> which did no good because this guy was headed right for her. But anyway, she's in, in this, you know, the ambulance people came, and, and um, they had to use all kinds of equipment to get her door open, to get her out, and they were afraid about her neck, and so they put a, a neck brace, a backboard on her, and they put her on a stretcher <laughs> and covered her with a blanket. Well, meanwhile, now the, those big, long lines of traffic's mile long because everything stopped. And she said, people are going to think you're carrying a corpse to the ambulance. So she kept poking at the blanket <laughs> so people would know she was still alive in there. But anyway, she got into the ambulance, and she's laying on this backboard, and the ambulance attendant is taking care of her. And, and she handed the ambulance attendant her phone, and she said, would you do me a favor and just go outside and take a couple of pictures of the accident for me? And the ambulance attendant said, oh, yeah, okay, is that for insurance? And Marjorie said, no, I want to scrapbook it. <laughs> That's my sister. But, you know, she, she told me later on after the accident, she said, you know, in those seconds when I saw him veer into my lane and I knew we were going to hit and I had my foot on the brake but I was just sliding on ahead, she said, all I could think of was, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this. <laughs> and there was nothing she could do to stop it, so she's watching in slow motion as the two cars ended up crashing. Uh, she was helpless to stop what was coming, but she was desperately wishing that it were otherwise. Well, Jesus knew exactly what my sister Margie was feeling. His death on the cross had been known from the beginning of time. It was set in place. Um, it, it, there's a verse that talks about Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. I mean, things were set. None of the events on his, um, the, the night that of his arrest were happening by accident. There was nothing that was coming as a surprise to him. He was watching the events unfold and desperately wishing it was otherwise. Earlier that evening, he had participated in the Passover Seder with his 12 disciples. He washed their feet. He uh, gave them the new meaning of the wine and the bread. He released Judas to carry out his betrayal. He warned his disciples they were all about to fall away. He told Peter he was going to deny him three times, and the Pharisees had made their plan, and he knew it, and everything was in place and ready to go on that night. The hour had come. But Jesus was struggling. Now, struggling was not new to Christ. His whole life was one big struggle from the time he left heaven and came to earth. His physical circumstances were always difficult. And, um, you know, he sent a man to know where to lay his head. All, it, was, it was a very hard time the whole way through. His family didn't understand him. At one point in Mark, we're going to be talking about this in my Bible study this week, that his family came to collect him because they thought he'd lost his mind. They didn't get it. His ministry was extremely demanding. Sometimes the crowds would press in so hard they couldn't hardly breathe and they were, couldn't find time to eat or rest or anything. Um, his disciples didn't get it. So many times you see in the Gospels where he's saying, don't you, you still don't understand? Like, he just, they couldn't break through. And compounded on all of that, the Pharisees were after him at every turn, sending... Um, Groups down to, to are up to Galilee to talk to him to find out, you know, get, get him to make a slip up in some way so that they could accuse him and bring him before the Romans. 
All of this was a struggle. All of it was a test to his determination in following the Lord's will, or God's will and doing what God wanted him to do. But this night, on the night before his crucifixion, this was the greatest trial he would ever have to endure. He faced the biggest trial of his life on earth. We might be assumed, tempted to assume that maybe what he was talking, thinking about was that physical agony that he was going to have to go through. And I'm sure that was part of it because that was tremendous. But the spiritual agony that he faced was far greater than anything they could have done to his body. Earlier on, Jesus described the um, agony he would have to go through as a cup. He said to his disciples at one point, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Well, that metaphor, the cup, was a reference to Old Testament passages and it identifies a cup or describes God's wrath on sin as a cup, as a cup. In Isaiah, it says, Rouse yourself, arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger, the chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. The cup Jesus referred to was the wrath of God that was about to be poured onto him. He'd be bearing the sins of the world. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He became the sins that we've committed on that cross. Think about what that would mean for someone who had never, ever known the taint of sin, ever. And yet that's what he was going to look forward to. He would be experiencing separation and rejection from God. Now you know the whole way through his Gospels, he was off praying in the mornings and in the evenings, and he just had this wonderful communication with God the Father. He had never known a barrier to his communication and his um, relationship with him. But now God was going to turn his face away from him as he bore the sins of the world. Now I want to remind you, none of us have ever experienced God turning his face away because God is omnipresent here on earth. He's everywhere at once, and for many of us, His Holy Spirit indwells us and is part of us. But Jesus was about to experience the darkness of the void without God that none of us have ever had to experience. Jesus alone could fathom the depths of God's righteousness, the man's sin, and the measure of that divine wrath that was about to be poured out to him. And so he struggled. The extent of his agony in the garden... Um, in anticipation of that greatest trial, can be seen in Jesus' actions and, and also in the disciples' reaction to what he looked like. First of all, he takes his inner circle with him and he asks them to stay with him. And he goes a little distance for them and he goes to pray. Jesus throws himself down, prostrate on the ground, face down to the ground. Hebrews uh, 5.7 tells us he prayed with loud crying and tears. Um, no other instances do we see that kind of intensity in Jesus' prayer. This is the one. Um, He tells his disciples, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. His agony was so great as he looked forward to what he was about to happen, it could have killed him on the spot. One commentator I read said, if the angel hadn't come and strengthened him, he would have died there in Gethsemane because the agony was so great. Luke tells us that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. Just trying to give a visual picture of just how much Jesus was suffering as he prayed in the garden. And finally, we can see in the disciples' reaction to what they were witnessing in Jesus by how intense the scene was. Luke tells us the disciples were sleeping, but he tells us they were sleeping from sorrow. 
I think they were looking at Jesus and seeing him in his agony and the struggle he was going through, and they knew something big was up. They didn't get it. They didn't understand exactly what it was, but they were so wrought by watching Jesus and his struggle that they were so exhausted from that that they fell asleep. So there's a lot to be learned in how Jesus prayed that night, the night of his greatest trial, because while any of our struggles will, of course, never rival what he struggled with that night, um, we do face struggle all the time. They're tests to our obedience and our dedication to God. And so how and what Jesus prayed is great guidance to us in how we should pray in circumstances where we are being trusted for our obedience. So we're going to take a look at Matthew 26. And I'm actually going to read the whole passage. I didn't put it all up on the screen. I just put his prayer up there. But um, just to give you an idea, the, Jesus, I'm in Matthew 26:36. if anybody's interested in following along. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. He went a little beyond them and he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, so you men couldn't keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinner. Let's get up and let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Let's pray and ask God to bless his word. Lord, we want to take a look at, to the heart of Christ as he prayed what he did that night in Gethsemane. We thank you, Lord, that he did follow through and was obedient to your will. Um, as Terry prayed earlier, if that had not happened, if those events had not happened, we would not be here today. So we do thank you for that obedience. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us to look at his words, understand his intent, and, and gain a deeper understanding of our Savior. And also, Lord, that we would gain a deeper understanding on how you would have us to pray when we face trials of various kinds um, so that we might glorify you as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we can learn from how Jesus prayed that night. Now the information I'm going to be taking, I read you Matthew's account. Mark and Luke also write a very similar account. There are a few differences here and there, and we'll be talking about those, but that's where I'm taking all my information from. But when facing his greatest trial, Jesus' prayer demonstrated several things. The first is it demonstrated a confidence in God. And by the way, that's on the back of your um, bulletins. There's a little outline there for you to fill in if you wish. So let's examine the first words that he prayed. Well, he starts with, Mark uh, is a little bit different than Matthew. It's Abba, Father. Abba, Father. That's the name that Jewish children would call their dads. Daddy. Abba, Father. Um, so he invoked that relationship. Uh, and you kind of feel that depth of emotion. By the way, it's the only time Jesus uses Abba, Father. The only time is in this prayer. Abba, Father, Daddy. So you almost get that depth of emotion, that wanting to crawl up onto Dad's lap. 
because it's terrible things that you're facing, that depth of emotion. And then he says, everything is possible for you. The other Gospels say, if you are willing, Luke says, and Matthew says, if it is possible, Mark says, everything is possible for you. That's not a conflict. Um, it's just a different way of putting it. In the Greek, there's something called that if-then statement. It's called a first-class condition. And what it means is you're assuming this, this is true, then this. It's kind of an assumption that this is true. It's kind of like saying, if something is true, and let's assume for the sake of the argument that it is true, then such and such will occur. So Jesus was going to make a request on the basis that he knew that God was able to grant it. All was in place. Everything, every minute of Jesus' life on earth was leading up to this moment, and his substitutionary death had been planned for a long time. Revelation 13.8 says Jesus was the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. So before Adam and Eve even sinned, God had this plan in place to redeem us with a Savior. So things were in place. But I really believe there was Jesus thought that God could change the way things were. I have a young friend who was getting married a few years ago, and um, she, her, her uh, fiancé developed some psychological problems, and he started becoming very unstable. And she called her friend, her girlfriend, and said, I don't think I can go through with this. And her girlfriend said, well, then don't. <laughs> don't go through with it. If you think you're not supposed to marry him, don't do it. It's about two weeks away. And she said, it's too late. The invitations have been sent. It's over. I'm committed. I thought that was pretty sad. By the way, they're doing fine in their marriage. But <laughs> that was pretty scary to think. Things were out of control. You couldn't do it. But that's not what Jesus is praying here. Jesus isn't saying, I know that this is the only way and I can't do anything else. He's saying, if there's another way. He's talking about a possibility. Um, he expresses the possibility that God could do another way. If you are willing, knowing you are able, he's expressing a confidence in God alone and in his wisdom. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you're probably familiar with this story. The king of Babylon had commanded everyone bow down to the statue, and of course Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could not because they worship God alone. And so they refused, and it ends up with this big confrontation, and the king basically tells them, bow down or you're going into the fiery furnace. So it's going to cost them big time if they refuse to do it. And they refused. But this is what they say about God. And this is the kind of confidence that Jesus had in God the Father. This is the kind of confidence we need to have in our trials. This is what he says. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of the blazing fire. He's able. He can do it. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. They've trusted in God alone. Not in whether or not God is going to change their circumstances, but on who God is. Um, and they knew that what they knew to be true about God demanded their loyalty and their undying obedience. One commentator I read, John Ralverud, said this, Even that which we cannot expect to be done for us, we ought yet to believe that God is able to do so. And when we submit to his will and we refer ourselves to his wisdom and mercy, it must be with a believing acknowledgement of his power. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was saying, everything is possible for you. And so therefore, he was expressing that knowledge in his power. Um, the request was this, take this cup from me. 
Remember, Jesus knew what he was about to endure, that cup of wrath for God. But why now is he asking that the cup be taken from him when everything's been in place and he's been moving toward that his whole entire life here on earth? Why is he saying, if it's possible, take it away? Well, I had to really struggle with that one. It's a big, huge theological issue here about Jesus, whether he could have sinned or couldn't sin. And I'm not going to get into all that. But this is one thing I do know about Jesus. He was 100% man. He was 100% God. I don't know how that adds up, but it's true. Holy God, holy man. And the man part, the flesh, is weak. That's what Jesus told his disciples. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He possessed the weaknesses of the flesh that every man possesses without the taint of sin, but still those weaknesses. So Jesus, I believe, in his flesh, the fleshly part of him, was responding with this intense dread, which he knew was about about things that were going to happen. So did he have to go through with it, or did he have a choice? I believe he had a choice. And the reason I believe it is a couple. There's a couple of reasons. First of all, Peter, later on in the garden when he's being arrested, grabs a sword and starts swinging around ready to, you know, I'll defend you. Can you imagine? I'll defend you, God. Yeah, sure, that's going to happen. But anyway, Jesus, <laughs> Peter thought, you know, he was going to, and Jesus said, well, Peter, he said this, don't you think I can't appeal to my father and he will at once put at a disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus was not helpless as he went through all of these things in a crucifixion and his arrest and all those things that happened. The fact that Jesus remained on the cross the entire time until his death, to me, is amazing because in a heartbeat he could have changed those circumstances, but he chose not to. And I think the very fact that Jesus was struggling means he did have a choice because you don't struggle if there's no choice. And he was struggling. And in his prayer, in his struggle, though, he relied on the fact What he knew about the Father, he was his daddy. He was able. And we're facing a trial. Our prayer should reflect that kind of confidence in God as well. So another thing that Jesus' prayer also demonstrated was a submission to his will. He prayed that, not what I will, but what you will. We talked about the concept of will last week. Our will is our desire and our ability to be in obedience in our actions. Jesus' will was in Distinct, but never in opposition to the Father's will. He was always in complete submission, always ready to be obedient. Like Paul wrote in Philippians, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the death, even death on the cross. Now, I, I want you to notice that phrase there because you know he, he, he did all these things. He remained obedient to the point of death. And then Paul adds that phrase, even death on the cross. You see where you get that really um, weighty idea of exactly how much will it took for him to be able to do that. He submitted. To submit is to place priority on something else that's more important than what we might want or desire. In his flesh, Jesus was dreading what he was facing, but he set his eyes on the will of the Father, and he determined to obey no matter what the cost was to him. So Jesus faced the biggest trial of his life. He prayed the man of one desperately challenged. And in his agony, he prayed for a confidence in God, a determined submission to God's will. And finally, he prayed for a, he had a sense of dependence on his strength. Only Luke adds this detail. It says that um, God sent an angel from heaven to strengthen him. 
You know, there's another time in Jesus' life where God sent an angel to strengthen um, Jesus, and that was right after his temptation, the very beginning of Matthew chapter 4. And so here he, he went through this temptation, and God sent this angel to strengthen him. So it's very interesting to me that there's these two times. Both times, Jesus' will to obey was on the line. And both times, God sent an angel to strengthen him. Paul had the same kind of experience when he was praying for something uh, that was keeping him from doing his ministry. He called it a thorn in the flesh. Uh, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and he talks about he prayed just like Jesus three times to have it removed. We don't know what the thorn was. He calls it a messenger from Satan. It could have been an illness. Uh, we know he had poor eyesight because he had trouble writing. He had some um, other physical ailment, or maybe it was some person that just kept attacking and attacking and and, and uh, bringing him down. We don't know what it was, but it was getting in the way of his work. And so Paul asked for it to be removed. The Lord's answer to his prayer, that thorn, that suffering, was that that was a part of his will for Paul. And God would use it to serve his purposes in Paul. So Paul wrote this. He said, he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ might dwell in me. Sometimes God's response to us when we're praying through a trial is not to remove the cup he's given us to bear. Sometimes his response is to provide strength for the ordeal. And in this case, that's what he did for Jesus. He provided that angel. So how should knowing what Jesus prayed as he began the most difficult trial of his life affect us and in how we pray when we're in the middle of a trial. Well, here's a few principles to keep in mind when we come before him. When we pray, we must first understand God has plans to use our trials for our good. Now, we shouldn't be surprised when trials come, because a follower of Christ should experience some of the things that Christ experienced. A disciple's not greater than his Lord, so why should we drive away sorrows when we know that Jesus, um, of course, experienced the ultimate sorrow? So there's a few reasons. First of all, suffering identifies us with Christ. Paul wrote to the Philippians, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. We all want to have the mind of Christ. That's our desire. And experiencing suffering gives us insight into Christ that we wouldn't have had if we haven't suffered. So suffering can be used by God in that way for us to know him better. He's using our trials to change us and bring us to increasing glory. Um, Paul wrote, we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Christ may also be manifested in our, mor our uh, mortal flesh. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So he's using it in us for us to know him better and for us to better be able to reflect his glory. Second, when we also pray, we pray about a trial, we all must also, like Jesus did, submit yourself to his will. Our first instinct when a trial comes along is, take it away. <laughs> That's our first prayer. Or, why me? <laughs> We like to pray that one too. Instead, we should be praying, if this is your will, then I submit to it. Because God knows the best thing, and he wants you to acknowledge that he knows the best thing. He wants our loyalty to him and not to our immediate comfort. And that's what he wants from us. 
Sometimes the answer isn't what we desire. Instead of of supplying relief, God supplies the strength to get through it. Um, So we need to be very sensitive to the answer that God provides. I've heard people say, God either says yes, no, or wait. (laughs) Well, yes, but I have a caveat that goes with that. Of course, there's no other thing to say, but... (laughs) um, he says sometimes says yes, and he changes our circumstances. That's true. Miraculously sometimes. Or he says no, and he gives us the strength. Or if he says wait, he gives us the strength. So he always does something for us on our behalf when we're going through that trial. He's always working, always doing something for us. He's not going to abandon us, and he doesn't expect us to go through it alone. Third thing to keep in mind as you're praying through a trial, keep your eyes on him and not on your circumstances. This is a big one for me (laughs) because I start looking around like Peter did at the wind and the waves and suddenly I start to sink. It's going to happen every time unless our focus remains on him. Uh, Hebrews 12 tells us, let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Peace in a trial only comes from keeping our eyes on him. Now, what kinds of things do we look at and see in God that encourage us in our, in our struggle? Well, first of all, nothing can separate us from his love. Romans says, neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God will always love us. His love will always be with us, and no matter what our circumstances look like. Another thing we can know about God is nothing is out of control. Psalm 139 says, In your book were written the days that were ordained for me when as yet none of them had come to be. So God has planned out our lives. He has orchestrated circumstances on our behalf, and we know that he's in control. Second, third thing we know is that he's more powerful than anyone or anything. Um, in 2 Thessalonians, um, the writer is talking about the... Um, Uh, the Antichrist who's going to come to the earth, talking about end times. And he says, And you know what restrains him now. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. The one who's coming um, is in accord with the activity of Satan. And in 1 John it says, Greater is he who is in you than he is who is in the world. God has his hand on everything. Nothing has happened that is out of his control. Not what Satan's doing on the earth, not what the world leaders are doing. We can rest in the fact that he is in control. Not one tear will un- go unnoticed by him as we go through our trial. You can know that about God. Have you, you, in uh, Psalm 56 it says, You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Isn't that a beautiful picture? He saved all our tears. Not one has gone unnoticed by him. And we also can know about God that he will use this trial for our good. James 1 says, Consider it joy, my brethren, when you let encounter various trials. Know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's going to be worth it in the end. The trial will be worth the pain. Trial is going to bring us to perfection, so we need to keep our eyes on him and trust him. Fourth, we need to remember that we're praying to an empathetic God. It's not one who's sitting up in his throne in heaven looking in judgment down on us who are struggling. 
Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He knows every problem we've encountered. He's been there. He's done it. He's experienced it. And therefore, we know that we can depend on him to be an empathetic God. And last, know your prayers are powerful and effective. James uh, 5.16 says, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Know that your prayer is an amazing, tremendous source of power available to you. We're tapping into this power that God promises us. And it might not result in deliverance from the circumstance, but it certainly will result in deliverance through the circumstance. And so therefore, we need to know that it is one of God's primary provisions to help us in our perseverance. Jesus, remember, he urged his disciples, abide in me, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So it struck me as I was finishing preparing for this message this week, that although we've covered several types of prayers, they've all contained basically the same idea, to the point where as I was preparing my slides, I was like, did I say that last week <laughs> or the week before? Because God wants us to acknowledge his greatness. He wants us to acknowledge his power and our trust in him. He wants us to think of him as daddy, balanced with a healthy respect for who he is. And he wants our undivided loyalty to him. He wants our will in submission to his so that we can better reflect his glory um, as we go through our lives. So when our prayers reflect these principles, they please God. And as we pray them, he's going to use our prayers to transform us because prayer changes the prayer. And there's few things as powerful in this life as prayer. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. New Hope Chapel is a vibrant ministry in Arnold, Maryland. We are a Christ-centered church with biblically-based teaching focused on the Jewish roots of the faith and committed to helping each person discover and use their spiritual gifts. If you're in the area, we would love for you to come and visit. You can find out more information about our church at newhopechapel.org. Subscribe to the New Hope Chapel podcast on iTunes, and you'll get the next podcast in your sleep. Yeah, it's